This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and this is the minute you've all been waiting for. We are one hour and 47 minutes into Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, but in our parlance, we don't go by that. We say it is the 107th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, Heat, and as the 107th minute Long ago, you may remember back in the episode 30s, so many episodes back, 70 episodes so ago. So long ago. 70 episodes ago, the man that I'm speaking to today said, it, I don't even know if it was on the recording, but it was certainly afterwards, you have to have me back for the heist. And I said, that is a promise I will keep. This guy just did a 48-hour podcast for his amazing show, The Movie Crypt. He's the maker of Mayhem, um, whose star is now like Oscar buzzworthy guy, Stephen Yoon. I know. He's the maker of the Netflix War Party, uh, Point Blank, which we're going to be seeing soon, I believe, is in the can, pretty much. And I, I'm I'm sta- standing in the post production uh, room right now. I'm in the edit room, so you're you're in ground zero for Point Blank. Ground zero for Point Blank. He is the legendary. Uh, he's the legendary Joe Lynch. Joe Lynch, welcome Yay! back to One Eight Minute. I'm going to give myself a round of applause and give you a round of applause, Blake, for being up at four thirty just to do this. So everyone. <laughs> Both of you who are listening out there, including you, Chris Evangelista, uh, <laughs> this is dedication. This guy is willing to get up and wear a heat shirt, as I see, yes. uh, just for the occasion. I'm so. ready. I'm, I'm, I'm so fired up. You, like The first thing that Joe said to me off air, I'm ready, baby. I'm ready. And look, 48-hour podcast. I don't care about getting up early. You just did a 48-hour podcast. It's insanity. So Yeah, but it was for a good cause. So, I mean, yeah. much like you getting up at 4.30 is a good cause for Michael Mann's heat. Uh, yeah, the movie Crypt did a, like our third annual 48 hour Save the Yorkie marathon to benefit uh, this dog shelter uh, out east uh, that saves not just Yorkies, but all animals. And we've um, this was our third year and we said we had to do it again. So uh, Adam Green, a fellow filmmaker, and I stay up for 48 hours uh, from Friday afternoon until Sunday afternoon. And we just continue to record the, <clears throat> the entire time. And we have guests, we have musical acts, we have comedy, uh, we have live uh, uh, script readings. Like this year, we did a uh, live reading of a rare version of Gremlins. We did uh, a rare uh, script reading of George A. Romero's The Mummy. Let that one sink in, which was amazing. Um, and yeah, and it, all the all the money from that, from uh, the donations, and also from the silent auction. Was it thirty five thousand? Something. So amazing. The, fir- the first the first year we did thirteen, and we thought, holy crap. The second year we did uh, twenty four, and we were like, holy shit. Uh, and then this year, uh, when we hit the uh, the finish line, uh, we both looked at each other and went, holy fuck. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know where we're going to go with there, you know, after, but uh, but yeah, it ended up being fantastic, and uh, I thought it was we were not going to recover from it, but we did. So here I am. So many great guests as well. Um, I, I can't remember who it was, but it was cracking me up saying that they got to 
they were on the show before you had um, Bobcat Goldthwait and uh, the guest tweeted uh, something to the effect of, this is my first time opening for Bobcat Goldthwait. I can tell oh, people yeah, that, that I officially how... opened for Bobcat yeah, Goldthwait. Was, I'm uh, like, that's a great technicality, guys. That's a great technicality. I'll take it. Uh, I'll take... That was Jason, Jason Charles Miller, who funny enough was it, starred in my first music video 20 years ago in a band called Godhead. And both, you know, both of us kind of not set, went our separate ways. We just always kept in touch. And then we had similar friends. And then 20 years later, you know, we're doing this podcast together. And, and he was awesome. And then when he looked over and Bobcat walked in, his <laughs> eyeballs popped out like the fucking mask. So uh, and, and Bobcat came on and Tom Lennon came on after that, which was great. So, yeah, all in all, it was a huge success. Well, congratulations. Um, I'm looking forward to the next 48 hour one to see just how, just how crazy the guests can be. <laughs> Go screw yourself. <laughs> um, so right now, you know, we're, we're, we're talking Michael Mann's heat and the frame that we're looking at, the frames that we're looking at right now, perhaps the most iconic frames in the movie for the 107th, 108th minute. It's tough in a movie that is, you know, this kind of inundated with iconic images. I mean, we're in the thick of what's considered kind of the centerpiece of the movie. Every movie, if you're if you're lucky, every movie has something called a centerpiece, you know, whether it's actually in the center of the movie or not. Um, but, you know, as a filmmaker, you try to keep the audience going and try to give them something that like maybe in the middle of the movie that you know, either keeps them frosty or engages them some more. Or in in the case of this, uh, this is where it's, this is the peak of the story because this is what everything's been built towards. And, you know, and we'll get into it after the minute, but, you know, ever since I saw Heat back in, back in good old 1995, <laughs> um, I, I remember walking out of the theater going, that was a soap opera. And I don't mean that as in any disrespect, but very few movies at that point, at least genre thrillers, really took the time and the care to invest the audience in the characters. And, you know, and, and the whole thing, like man talks about it in the, uh, in the commentary, which I listened to on the way home last <laughs> night. Yes. I, yes. I'm that dedicated where I listened to the heat commentary driving on the four Oh five, uh, going home last night. I had some, there's time. not a more uh, LA thing that you've ever done in your life than listening no, to dude, the heat. Commentary that's what I kept saying. I was like, I'm in LA. And I'm listening to the heat commentary on the 405. Like this is, I, I've I've either broken some kind of fourth dimension or something. I don't know. But in listening to what man and it's a it's a shame in a way. And this is no, again no disrespect to man, but you know I love commentaries where the where the filmmakers are really just kind of just they can't shut up because you're just getting all this information. And man just kind of watches the movie. And every once in a while he'd be like, oh yeah, that's a car 15 practical version of the m16 they use these kind of bullets and then there will be like a little bit of a pause and i'm like do talk more give me more i, <laughs> I want to know just, that I, shot or I, that edit you know i was just gonna say i've gotten into the same habit of doing that before minutes listening to man and then sort of trying to put it away to you know just taking a few notes and there's a couple of moments that like in the opening of this scene it's so enthralling that he gets caught up like he just stops talking he's that, talking the whole I mean. way he's, he's talking the whole way during the highest you know, footwork, weapons training, technical advisory, and then he just pauses for the for what we're about to watch. And when we, um, I know we talked about this on the last, uh, the last, the, the last batch, I guess we did. Um, when I was at the one of the screenings of Heat, when they were promoting the disc, the new director's cut, and Man even said at one point he was like, "I just got caught up in the movie, and of course during the heist scene, I, I was holding my breath with all of you." 
<laughs> it's like for a filmmaker now, you know, that's 20 plus years since he was actually shooting it and editing it and putting it all together. And to remove yourself from a movie is a very difficult situation. You know, um, I, I've done it before myself where it takes me a couple of years to actually watch a movie of mine objectively. Not that I sit there and watch them all the time, but it, it really does. It's, it's sometimes tough, especially when you go, I wish I had that and that could have been better. And boy, I wish the studio let me do this and whatever. But you know, that, that moment in this whole sequence that we're literally like in the, the eye of the storm for is so well constructed and crafted that you can't not appreciate everything going on, even the filmmakers themselves. So, you know, when, when man puts this all together and, and, and again, even just down to the visuals, this is a, a, a culmination of what he's always talked about both in life and also in filmmaking. And that's cause and effect. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, some filmmakers use as a device in, in a good way. Like, um, what is it? Uh, like, uh, Robert Zemeckis, you know, Robert Zemeckis loves doing things called buried guns where he'll, he'll put together like all these little hints that are in a scene and you won't realize that they're hints until after you see the, you know, like after you get to a certain point and go, Oh, okay. Now what man does here is he's been setting up all of these characters, even down to like the, the prelude before we start seeing De Niro's feet walking into the bank where it's a shot of like almost everyone's families and to, to set up like making the audience automatically go, uh Oh, you know, yeah, something is about to happen. Why am I seeing Amy Brenneman pack a books? Uh, pack books yeah, why are we shelf? looking at Val Kilmer's mulleted, you know, mulleted kid sitting there with like, you know, uh, those those blocks putting those things together? I'm like, it does it mean something? Yes, and it's all based on character. So that's why, like this this first minute that we're gonna do, you'll like when when you watch this, notice how the move. This whole section is completely hinging on close ups. Yes. Close-ups, close-ups, close-ups. We are 100 and... Oh, my gosh. This is just insane. 108th... Oh, sorry. No, 107th minute we're about to watch now of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. We're going to check it out. You guys are going to have to have a listen to it, and we're going to come back, and we're going to just dissect every single part of it. We're not going to take a break like Michael Mann got caught up. We're going to get caught up and watch it with you guys, and you guys are going to get yes. caught up listening. We're going to unpack every single element of this thing. All right, let's take a listen. Hit it. <laughs> you know, we've, we've all 
we've, you know, I, I've listened to episodes before and sometimes you listen to them and go like, did anything happen? Is it just like a bunch of helicopter shots and, you know, just these kind of like slightly quasi surrealist moments that, that uh, man has or, you know, a lot of exposition or whatever. But this scene and obviously the scenes before it, but this scene in particular is really the the moment where everything converges what we've been waiting for since man set up the you know uh the the hannah storyline and when he also you know on the flip side he uh the the macaulay side both of these have been other than the uh the cafe scene both of these scenarios and all the the players involved have always been in the periphery or just nearly like coming together and this is the moment that happened unfortunately because of fucking asshole Wayne Grove. <laughs> like just to go back to a, a previous minute, I love that it it the man has such a respect for the audience that he's not going to shove what Wayne Grove told Henry Rollins to tell uh you know to tell the cops. He kind of just does it and it just and, and almost like the cops were all kind of gobsmacked like oh 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 shit oh crap like Get in the car, grab the you know, grab the the heavy artillery. Let's go, and the fact that he can almost throw it away a major a major plot point that gets our heroes, so to speak, to that bank and to that downtown area. Uh, you know, it, it happens almost to the point where it, it might even seem like a continuity jump. But you you are so invested in the movie at that point that when we get to this minute. And, you know, you look at it very closely. You, you have close-ups. You have close-ups of, uh, of Hannah. You have close-ups of his whole team. You have De Niro just walking up into the car. You have, um, you know, De- Dennis Habert's character who's just standing there. You have Sizemore. If Sizemore... Sizemore's you know, that, giddy. Sizemore's giddy, Joe. It fucking drives... It's so crazy that in the midst of this, that just shows me his, like, lunacy. And, and literally the action is the juice so much for him in this moment that he's, like, giddy. That's, what get, that's one of the things that gets me in this minute that's so crazy is his giddiness in the car. But he jinxed it. Totally jinxed it. And you know what's Jinx, funny, though? You is, son of a bitch. <laughs> I, I think, I think if, if man had decided not to put that moment in, I don't think there would be as much dread in, installed into yeah. the moment. Because we all know it's like the, the moment that anyone kind of lets their guard down. And Sizemore is a really good example where other than maybe when you know he accepts the job, when, when De Niro kind of lays it all out to the team and says, like, look, this is, this is the score. If you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out. And, you know, obviously Sizemore's like, hey, man, you know, the gig is the, you know, the gig is the juice. He's into it because he's a thrill seeker. Any other time you've seen him, he's fucking steel. You know, when they're at the diner and he kind of gives the guy the thousand yard stare, like in the most case, in most cases, Sizemore has just been kind of like a machine. And then the moment when he gets in the car and he's, you know, celebrating and then the second that you see him flash that smile, that's where the audience goes, this is not going to go well. Um, and, and looking at every shot that's constructed up to this point and including all of the music up to that point, like man also says too, you know, when, when he had Elliot Goenthal, uh, do the score, he's doing a score, not just for the, uh, the robbery, but also the convergence moment. So that, dun, 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 that, <clears throat> that actually plays really well for multiple scenes. But then once we get to the moment that is so expertly edited 
by Dove Hoing and and, uh, and Pat Buba, rest in peace. Um, so much information is given to what's culminating in less than a second. Less than a second is when the music abruptly stops. Less than a second, their lives lives entirely change. Less than a second, every like quiet and calm and a normal serene day for everybody involved in the movie and everyone surrounding that area you know which obviously you know is highlighted by you know a big wide shot when the entire uh, you know crowd around them just kind of ducks and starts to starts to run everyone is affected by that one look when you see you know West Studi and uh, Michael T Williamson across the way and seriously count frames it's probably 18 frames where the the entire movie shifts and the music drops out and the music becomes or the sound design becomes the music yes. you know up to up until that point you know at least for the first 4 or 5 minutes we've been completely in you know like inundated by this wonderful score that gets your heart pumping and then after that it's almost like you jump off the diving board and then you're in the deep end at that point and the symphony of bullet sounds take over from there and man uses from- a great phrase joe just to jump in man uses nope, an amazing phrase where he says you know if if you listen to the commentary track on the new um on the new di- director's definitive edition of heat um he's talking about in the lead up to this in the high scenes he's talking about their body armor he's talking about the the accurate number of magazines that are on them he's talking about their gun training he's even praising um, Robert De Niro and he's like, you should see Bobby on the extras on this TV and I would oh, strongly yeah, recommend how, you do. how precise he was. He's like shooting targets at 35, 40 feet just with a handgun hitting them, knocking them down. Like it's a real, his proficiency is insane. But the phrase he uses particularly for this moment is he's like, he's like, when they know they've been ambushed, the reaction shot that comes and then he just goes, Val, let's go. Yeah. And I just There's no hesitation. That. He's just, compl- there is, yeah, like you said, 18 frames, you know, <laughs> 18 frames, less than a second. <laughs> Let's just yeah. put it a bit, less than a second, that gun, that gun whips out of his coat that's concealing it and it's just straight up and is immediately released. There is absolutely zero hesitation. And that's just another, I mean, the, the huge elephant in this entire scene, I think in this movie, um, is you know the the co lead being Val Kilmer and he just gives so much physical presence and does so much stuff in this scene that begins right now with him just releasing that gun that you just like he's the most hypnotic I find element almost in this entire sequence and the minute he does that you're like oh this is just sublime here we go well he he becomes a killing machine he becomes Jason <laughs> yes. Voorhees yes. it's like that scene in um Freddy versus Jason if you remember Freddy versus Jason there's a scene where Jason goes to a rave which that the, right there makes you want to see the movie <laughs> but there's a moment in the movie where he just kind of goes on a killing spree and he's taking out ravers left and right with no funny business no quips no like second looks he's just dispatching people with no regard for human life and when you watch like man was man was not stupid when he sees Val Kilmer with the long blocks and the sunglasses and that smile that same smile that we saw in Top Gun and in Real Genius he's almost exploiting it because that almost false sense of security by seeing that smile that we've seen in movies that we've paid good money to see in movies yes and then to have that completely change into what is terrifying like 
you know, there was a there was a, a meme that was going around a couple of months ago from a Star is Born where they were doing like, hey, I just wanted to look at you again. And it shows like Lady Gaga, <laughs> like grumpy. And then it shows her smiling. smiling yeah. It's like you could flip that and show like Val Kilmer with that million dollar smile. And then the second that he pulls his gun up, he is fucking terrifying. Yes. Like I would never want to be on the business end of that look, let alone the gun. And that that to me, I think, is just part of how man knows how to cast, because for that, like, even if we're we know that he's a killer, that he's, a, you know, he's crazy and that he's got a gambling problem and he beats his wife and he's a he's a flawed, quote unquote, quote, protagonist in a movie filled with great protagonists that that moment to me, it, it's it's such a shift, not totally, but for the character where you he's never going to be the same in our eyes again because of how precise he is with his killing and that he doesn't even think like he shoots at those guys and then he turns and he shoots at Ted Levine which I, in a weird sort of way I think is kind of karma as a bitch for the silence of the lambs like he, <laughs> he, sorry Ted you needed to be taken down a peg but th you know that that whole and, moment and the argument always has been in the 90s is who had more beautiful hair Jodie Foster or Val Kilmer and I think finally we saw. Oh, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, it's definitely Val Kilmer at that. I think he wins with uh, three hundred bullets. He wins that that argument. But you know, like, and to take that moment in particular, even just from a from a production standpoint. And sorry to jump all the way to the end, but fuck it, it's heat. Um, you know, wa watching this again after having just done a movie with a lot of gunfire. Now, uh, you know, Man actually talks about it later on in the commentary about how he wanted to show the impact of what you know, the, the, the CAR-15s and all of these high-powered weapon weaponry, what they actually do, and, you know, he doesn't want to also show it where it's a fucking splatter fest, so he used all the cars around them to show how brutal these bullets can pierce not just metal but skin, you know, and they use a thing called Bondo, and what that does is, uh, you know, they make, they pre-score the holes and that's a huge thing too. Like my my hat goes out to Man and his team for being able to work for weeks and months in crafting how this thing was going to dance. You know, because it really is. It's like a it's a it's a dance of violence. Yeah. And the fact that you have to pre-score all of these, you know, cars, newspaper racks, street, even people with bullet fire. It's so difficult to get right. And it's and frankly, you have, you know, breaking glass and you have things that are shooting out all over the place. And, you know, you what ultimately you're looking for realism. But at the same time, you got to make sure it's safe. Um, the moment when Val turns and shoots at Ted Levine's character and what you notice is that the the squibs go off almost like a wave towards him. Yes. You know, it goes bah, 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 and then hits him. Again, you know, I, I just shot this movie point blank over the summer and, you know, I didn't have nearly as much gunfire uh, as, as this whole sequence does. We have a fair amount, but it's still terrifying when you have that stuff go off and the amount of reset that you have to do. Like if you fuck up that, you know, that shoot or you fuck up that shot, all these technicians and all these art department people and stunts and special effects, they all have to come in and refix that. But if you let it go, it, it doesn't look real. There's so many moments in this movie, especially in this scene, where I sit there and go, it, they must have shot off real guns. 
And that that moment in particular, the wave of bullets that gets closer and closer to Ted Levine, who, for all intents and purposes, we got to know a little bit. He, but he's you know he's he's one of the supporting characters to Vincent Hatta. But his death shook me. Yes. And the reason why I I think my theory on why it shook me was two things. One, the way that it you know it occurs where we've now. We, we're now watching these two like trains, these two freight trains, the Hannah train and the Macaulay train literally crash together at this point. And everything else is just shrapnel and, and collateral damage. And when Ted gets shot, it's it's so like unflattering, I guess you could say. It's unflattering and it also gives immediate stakes. So many films that you watch when there's a crew um, – they overplay any death of a crew member. Mm-hmm. So you can like, you can see it coming. He's just had a call with his family. You know, it's very, they, they use every trope in the book. They just throw yeah. the trope, the, the, you know, every single trope they can do. And here it is part of that immediacy of the scene is that th- there's an immediate consequence of that gunfire and he's down and there's like yeah. the air gets sucked out of it. Vincent looks at him, his dead body like seconds before we close out this frame. He's sort of touching his chest and looking at him and appraising him. And we haven't gone like 10, 15 seconds in this high. So I'm like, oh, well, look, anyone is anyone is de- can die. Anyone any, in this scene any, can die. Anybody can catch a bullet. And you, you totally nailed it. Like I think because at that moment, seconds before, we had uh, – man had stripped the music out. Yes. And in most cases, filmmaking-wise – Sometimes you have to goose the audience a little bit with a sting. You know, they yes. call it a sting, yeah. where it's not necessarily a score moment. It's a dun 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 or a, you know, like one of those fucking Chris, <laughs> Chris Nolan. Inception, wow. But if, you know, there is a perfect opportunity for man and for the composer to sting that death. There just is. It's like visually, it. I remember watching it and almost going, where's the sting? Yes. Because we've always had that sting to go like, oh no, he's dead. <laughs> but the fact that that man strips away the music and then lets breathing and gunfire, not, not just gunfire, but arguably the loudest and most echoey gunfire up until that point that has ever been heard in film. Like I challenge anyone to, to, to come up with a film that came out preheat that has had gunfire and sound, that gunfire sound design that has been that evocative and that impactful. Um, I, I remember again being in the theater and going, I've never experienced this immersive surround sound and with this, with the bullets alone ever. So when that impact hits and he goes down, the face on Ted Levine is terrifying. It's, it's a, he's terrified. It's a death. It's, the worst it's a death, death. It's a death mask. And his eyes, I don't know what, he, this is the power of Ted Levine's gaze. And I keep trying to examine it, and it's just, it's perfect on the biggest screen absolutely possible. But he's the whites of his eyes when he hits the deck get you every time. It's they're so close up. No, it's not a close up. They're like like luminous. He hits the deck and he's got this death mask, and you're like, (gasps) like it's, it's, it does, it does something. It does, there's a visceral reaction. That's a very good point because, like, what we were talking about before, and again, Look at all the moments up until the point when we get the Val Kilmer smile. Pretty much every shot from both the cop side to the robber's side, 
everything is in close up. Everything is emoting everything about these characters where you don't need to worry. At that point, man does not have to worry about geography. No. You know, the, the geography is has been laid out early on. And, and even still, it's not as important yet. It's more important to map out the emotional journey that these each character is going on just to get 100 feet, just to get to that car, just to open that car. And, and there's even that shot that's earlier on where you have the point of view of the door opening. It's like we've all been there where we've had that moment and whether it's <laughs> run, running away from a car chase or just trying to get to the bathroom to take a crap, you know, it's <laughs> like you just get there. You're just like those pivotal like moments where, you know, like, oh, God, here it comes. And everything is is really played on faces. Now, he could have laid out like, OK, how directly far apart is their car from the uh, the U-Haul car that's, you know, the truck that's across the street? And how far away really is that bridge that later on they drive under and get shot at? You know, other movies, I think, would have felt the, ne the necessity to set that all up, whereas man has been teasing us for over an hour now on not just this heist, but who these people are. And to throw them into the eye of the storm at that moment, it's better off that we see every nuance of their face, whether it's Tom Sizemore smiling to, I mean, if you notice, you know, uh, Neil McCauley does not smile one bit. Neil you know, does even not smile. Let's be very clear. Is very, is, you even know, Dennis like, Haysbert. Do this? Even yep, Breeden. Breeden is, when, when Sizemore taps Breeden on the back, one thing I love about Dennis Haysbert's performance, it's tiny. He's not even really in the frame. He's in the like no. far he's right frame, and he's and and he's just like almost like that that recoil that if someone pats you on the back that you don't like, he's like, don't fucking touch me right now. Yeah, like, not, now, yeah, now is not, not yet, the time. Dude. Not yet. Now but is not the time. there's there's a chance. There's a chance that they can get out of this, and Macaulay is still stone faced. Oh yeah. So. You know, every, you know, and then, then, then you go to Vincent, and then you go to, you know, you go to West Studi and Michael T, you know, going back to, um, to Ted Levine's death, you know, again, we were seeing everybody in close-ups and then all of a sudden Ted Levine dies and we're only seeing it in a far away shot or medium shot, yeah. which to me, I like, again, watching it again, it feels like the, like the camera guy just kind of caught it and is looking down at a dead body and is as just as shocked yes. as we are the the filmmaker is never shoving a, a face of a dead man in in the audience's face to elicit a false response. Yes. Um, another thing that I want to bring up with that moment, and I remember reading, I think it was in Film Comment, oh God, twenty years ago, but um, how Vincent Vincent Hanna's response to that death. Now, in other films, there would there might have been a moment where Hanna goes like, "Get some backup, get a get an ambulance over here." What does Vincent do? He he lays down. He looks, you know, uh, Ted in the eyes, and then continues. And I've heard criticism that say that he's he lost our sympathies with that moment. That he's a sociopath. That he's completely, you know, he's he's far too far gone in his drive to get Macaulay. That he can't even think about, you know, kind of standing down from one of his own. I I am I'm on the other I'm, side. Of the I'm completely here. on the other side. I think, especially you and I, being people who've watched this scene so many times, it just shows you how he knows. Like that, he you, doesn't need to sit there he, and go he, medic. He, he doesn't need to scream medic. The fact that, and I I actually think there's a delicacy 
in Vincent just briefly. He's he's nursing that that assault rifle in his right hand, and he kneels and he puts his hand on Bosco's chest, like on the side of his yeah. chest, or just away from one of the wounds, and he sees that he's gone. And so yeah. that is his gesture of like he's gone. But there's also a raging gunfight happening. Like yeah. what what and kind of ridiculous melodrama? You hear, yeah, yeah well, you hear everything. You hear the cacophony of you know of screams and gunfire and every and the chaos. And that's where I think the genius of the choice of losing the score works in this moment to heighten that moment where it's his breath. You listen very closely and there is a breath that he takes. And that's really all I needed as an audience member to go, this is the moment where like, you know, Bosco's body is saying, go on and get him. You yes. know, like I, I am fallen. You don't need to have me have some melodramatic moment and go, don't worry about me. Keep going. <laughs> you don't need that. I ain't got you know, time to bleed, Vincent. <laughs> There's a chance that that could have either been there before yes. and they cut it out or, you know, it was there and they just said, we don't need this. I think, you know, you said it before, the stakes are immediately raised. There's not, you know, we're not two thirds of the way in and someone gets shot. And if you notice, spoiler alert, you know, he doesn't lose anybody else on his team. No. You know, um, you know, the, the jockey guy gets shot, you know, but that's barely anything. Every, every and and seeing you're right there's that there's a a twinkle in hannah's eye in that moment where he goes fuck like this is one of mine and now i gotta go after you if anything i think that's what drives him even further like that's what yes. really kind of he's like when, something into it you know i think to go back to this minute uh, around the architecture of it i i, th I love we've kind of danced around it but it's like the it's the complete reverse of as you said Joe of like instinctively mapping out the choreography and the architecture of the scene because you're staying in close and you're staying in with faces and i think that the more that we're talking about the more that i'm realizing it's like man is trying to show us the vice that these characters are in it's all about how vincent is pressing up into the yep. scene we're watching everyone encroach 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 and then once um once val does that first release you know i think it's even just in a flash we start to see other police presence um here and man even in the commentary he says uh this is like this guy like he's he's got he, he says the words that are in his scripts in real life he's like vincent's no cowboy he says yeah. he's not because he's not irresponsible. So he's like he, he he doesn't know at what stage this heist is actually at when they're pressing in. They're pressing in, and so what's so great is this this vice like quality as we're being pressed in, pressed in, close up faces, close up faces. Once, once, and he comes into it in later commentary, but he said he talks about tactical advantage. Once those guys who are using close quarter military tactics realize they have the tactical advantage, especially against just the the car roadblock, they're not yeah. going to, they're not going to go against the other cops or against Vincent's crew directly. They're only just going to sort of cover, lay down cover and get away from them. They're going to mm -hmm. charge through the weakness spot. And that's when the architecture of the scene, and we will see it in the next minute we discuss as well, it just blooms. We then get to see the whole length of the street. We yeah, see where and everyone right. is. You're right. Um, and, you know, and we'll save that for the next minute. But, you know, the, the other thing that you notice or that I noticed watching this again was not only are you dealing with close-ups, but you're dealing with a lot of long lens. 
Yes. A lot of voyeuristic shots. I mean, the minute our minute starts off with Vince and Hannah looking around the corner, and then the next thing you shoot, you cut to is what looks to be either an eighty millimeter or one hundred twenty-five millimeter shot of uh, Neil and and, uh, and Val coming out of the out of the, the bank. And I mean, just just that's basic cinema right there. It's like okay, we're you know either looking around the corner or we're looking at Neil. And, I'm sorry, we're looking at Vincent, and then we go, okay, what are we cutting to? What are we looking at? And if you notice, like after that, then the next time we see the cops, they're running through the crowd, but it's all again through very long lenses. So to have the juxtaposition of super macro close-ups of our heroes and very almost voyeuristic, uh, like every every long like wide shot is a long lens, yes. and that's a very deliberate choice. He, I think the only, from what I remember, the only like kind of wide vista shot is really just to see all the people cower when the, the bullets hit. Yes. You know, um, also I would say that, uh, if I was, sorry to go off on a tangent here, but if I was the product placement person, uh, <laughs> if, if I, if I owned Thai airlines, I would be incredibly pissed because <laughs> yes. that moment when they're running and you see the bus and you see Thai airlines, I'm like, that bus is going to get fucked up <laughs> in about 10 seconds so probably not the best place to be putting thai airlines fly you know see, fly 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 the bullet friendly skies and and um, or, or even u-haul i see that u-haul truck so many times drive away oh, yeah. and, and and reveal and reveal paul casals and uh and michael t williams's truck and i'm like you sons of bitches u-haul why did you have to move they were in perfect well, why cover. did they just get a they could have just gotten a bigger U-Haul. Whoever had that U-Haul could have gotten a bigger U-Haul, and then they wouldn't have been seen. And then, well, we wouldn't have gotten one of the most amazing, amazing action scenes of all time. Of all time. But when they drop, there, you know, there's an interesting cut that happens after shit hits the fan, and I think it happens in the next minute. But when we, when they use or the editors go from going close up, like when Michael T. Williams and West Duty get up. We start on these close-ups, and then in a match action, it's called an outline cut. Uh, to go from those close-ups to their action of getting up, it's not only something that kind of excites the frame, but it it made me feel watching these minutes again that from this point now, man is feeling the need to open up the world, like you were saying too, open up the world so that we can go. Oh, okay, where are they? Because. Yes. You know, again, I didn't live in L.A. when I saw this movie and I didn't live in L.A. for a long time after. Um, and frankly, I hate downtown. I'm just not a fan, um, which is weird because I love New York and like L.A. downtown is kind of like New York, but it's not uh, <laughs> the, the sense of the sense of geography in, in that scene before. And again, I'd seen this movie a million times. I didn't know where that was. And then only maybe 10 years ago did I go, holy, like I was like on the set of something. I went, holy shit, I'm on the, the set of Heat in the, the, the big, gun, <laughs> big gunfight. And what's crazy is that if you've ever been there, if you've ever been downtown where that section is, it's huge. And yeah. it made me appreciate how much choreography went into even just that one part of the bank from getting them from point A to point B into the car, then out of the car, then get, you know, get Breeden going and get all the cops running and get, you know, the blockade going and everything. There is a huge expanse, yet man is smart enough to keep us close to their vest until they get in the car. Once they get in the car, you, again, you, you're only getting as much geography as each 
party is covering. You yes. know, the car gets us out to a certain point and it stops. And, you know, the obviously the cops are all on foot, so they're taking it, you know, we're, they're taking us with them. But very rarely, think about it, just overall, in most, like most action films, you want to get as big a shot as possible to kind of show in a kind of Sergio Leone kind of sense where everybody is at any given time. Yet, what makes this minute and the next minute so fucking powerful is that it doesn't, so it it leaves you with, with visual chaos. And that kind of visual chaos, and, and obviously the editing and the shooting too, allow us to feel like we are so immersed in it that if you had broken away and looked at kind of like a God's eye view or something like that, whether it, like they did it today, it would be a drone shot or it'd be a crane shot or even a shot from, and I've, I remember John McTiernan did this in uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance where he had some of the action for like an explosion happen in a building where people are watching from afar. Yes. And that kind of distance is interesting and I liked it for with uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. But if we ever broke out and followed a pedestrian or followed, say, uh, a news van or a news like helicopter, which I'm sure is sometimes used in movies. I've seen we've both seen it before. I think we would not we'd be lost in that scene or we would lose our impact of the scene because we're not in it with them. You feel embraced. You feel just like you're being brought in, brought in. And and then you, you need to be disorientated. Like we're lost here because then at the, the minute that Val lets go, when he starts firing, he's he, he doesn't know where all the threats are. That's what's so powerful, I think, about that Bosco moment is that everyone's pressing in. He's got guys on the other side of the street. We don't know where the cops are. Yeah, I think you, you, you. It's 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 about that relentlessness that you need for the scene. I think exactly like you said. As soon as you, as soon as you add space, you add air, and you take and you you give us back our breath. And I think that that's yeah. what's so great about this scene is that it is a. You know your heart rate, that that little score, that little. Um, uh, I, I'm just calling it like the the pulse of the movie, that of of this yeah. entire heist. It is it has already elevated your heart rate for about three or four minutes up to this point. So now yeah. that we're actually in it, and the score evaporates, and then the gunfire happens, you're in a heightened state. It's been bringing you to this point, and I just think you're so right. It's like if you if you take it out, and I love in that's a great reference actually. McTiernan in Die with a Vengeance because he actually takes the piss out of it first. He does that great shot where he sees the explosion from the building underground, mm-hmm. and then people later are eating popcorn yeah. while they're and watching then it. Cuts it. Them and it makes it <laughs> makes it almost trivial. And yes. For, for McTiernan and for that, it's perfect because perfect. then you find out that that was all part of the plan and it was actually a heist. Yes. Whereas with, with Heat, the heist is the heist is the juice. Yes. The heist is exactly everything that we wanted to. And it's almost like Michael Mann is saying, this is what you want? Well, guess what? This is what you get. And when <laughs> we get into the next minute, we'll get into this is what you want, this is what you get. And characters that you've been kind of following, even in the periphery for so long – they're going, not just Ted Levine, but even other ones. And for better or for worse, this is the life. It's exactly what he's saying. This is the life, for better or for worse, you're in it. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop dragging you through the mud until we are all at fucking uh, Jeremy Piven's vet, uh, vet <laughs> office and they're taking bullets out of us. Up until then, I'm going to drag you by your fucking coffers <laughs> through all of this. Well, before we go, I think that's, Let's be dragged through the by our coffers through the next minute together. That's the perfect close, the perfect ellipsis. Before we get into the next minute, this is a double minute with Joe Lynch. We're in Woo-hoo! the ne- we're, we're we're right in the thick of this heist. Just want to mention a couple of names right up front: Andy McNabb and Mick Gould. 
were the technical weapons trainers here. So we're probably going to talk more about those guys in the next moments mm-hmm. because there's just oh, yeah. so, so incredible. And there's a particular talk in, in the in the commentary track. But these guys, you know, Andy McNabb, who's now an established author, and Mick Gould have worked with man on a stack of films. But he, most notably, because this centerpiece scene is so famous, Harry Lou was the weapons master. Um, uh, uh, just an incredible thing, and uh, and as Joe said, um, the incredible Pat Boober, may rest in peace, um, yes. was a part of this show. And uh, so, just before, as we're talking about one of the most powerfully edited pieces of action cinema ever, um, this would be, a, a, I think, an appropriate moment to dedicate this minute and the next one, and uh, and let you guys. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll wrangle up our recording and I might post it as a bonus episode out of sequence so you can hear the great man talking about his favourite moment, a much more quiet and contemplative moment of the film than, yes. than, than what we're talking about. But his mastery is on show here. So um, without the man I'm talking to, I wouldn't have gotten to talk to him um, and you guys wouldn't get to hear him. So thank you, Joe. Guys, we're going to quickly pause. For you, there's going to be a gap in time. For Joe and I, it's mere minutes before we dive into the next minute. Thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute. My guest, the inimitable Joe Lynch, is coming back. So we'll talk more to him in a minute. But uh, we'll catch you on the next moment of this heist just around the corner. Let's do it. Let's do it.